A friendly reminder to cast your vote in the upcoming midterm elections in the United States on Tuesday, November 6th, 2018. This is the Permaculture Podcast. I'm Scott Mann. This is an atypical episode of the show, as you can probably tell from the title. In this conversation, I sit down with Joshua Hughes of Verdenergia Pacifica and Black Sheep Regenerative Resource Management to talk about the intersection of permaculture and politics to engage, get involved, and change the system to create the world we want to live in. Yes, Joshua has strong views on the state of the world and why things are as bad as they are. Depending on your position, you may not like some of what he has to say, but stick with us. This isn't a left versus right fight, but we do have to talk about some of that to frame the conversation. In the end, this is about sovereignty, consent, and compassion. What we have in common with one another, that we can organize around and fight together as a community for what we love. Enjoy this interview with Joshua, and I'll join you again afterward. What does this look like to you to mobilize permaculture practitioners politically in order to start bringing about this kind of change? Is it just to take the ethics and principles and apply them to our political thinking? Is this about creating like a firm party to start pushing back where we're bringing people together? Is this a like a national or a regional movement? Is it worldwide? Can you kind of walk me through what you see this as, as being? Well, so far, it's a worldwide kind of anarchist thing from the bottom up. There's millions of people going around from place to place. The impact centers like Verde is. I'm meeting people that are doing this all over the place. And all we have to do really is start organizing that energy. I've been doing that for years here is just getting a bigger and bigger a group of alliances, right? And in the places like the Pacific Northwest, we have thriving unions right now still. We have thriving community-supported agriculture projects. You start putting this together, and we need to, we need to pretend, we need to be not, not violent in any way. Violence won't work. That plays into the violence hands, but militant. So I think we need to have a kind of a militant stance where we, we organize as if this is really happening, because it is. And right now we're scattered. So I don't know why we don't connect our unions with our, with our farms and our, over, our surplus. Unions can't go stand at the ports and stand for their rights when their families can't eat. We can't go out and show up and protest for a few weeks in the wintertime and expect the system to listen to us when we go home in three weeks because it's too cold to be on the street. Sustained political rebellion through organization. And I have organized probably five or 6,000 people from this little spot in Costa Rica. And that seems a lot harder to me, getting people to travel internationally, go to a place where I don't speak the language, didn't know the culture. You know, in small spots in the U.S., we already have a lot of political power. Some of the spots in Oregon and Washington are the most liberal in the U.S., Corvallis, Oregon, Eugene, Portland. There's just something missing where we're not organizing bigger than our little towns or bigger than our city councils. And so I think the permaculture can join us like it is already in our ideals and our ethics. But why don't we keep pushing and doing the alliances it takes and then showing up at the polls and not just doing We don't need to run for president. We don't need people to run for that big office. What we need to do is what the Republican Revolution did starting in 94 with Newt Gingrich and all these psychos, which was go into the ground, go win a sheriff's spot in your area, go win so you can help change the way they, they administer the law. Go win some judge seats in Portland. Go win city councils. We have to organize on the bottom. We don't need someone running for president against Trump in 2020. That's not the, be- the best answer. It's a waste of money. Most of that money will go to the media organizations for advertisement. What we have to do is use that same thing where we take in money from all over the world and we focus it into those areas and we win. And we go and we, we start affecting. We put our shoulder into it now. I've seen local politics work because I lived in Portland, Oregon, very active place. And it gave me hope. I lost hope a bit because I was looking at the top-down approach as well. Permaculture has taught me not to think from the top down. It's taught me to observe and, and look at the simple things and go up from there. 
And I think our Sanders thing was a good indicator of good energy, but it was still top down. And I think Permies should know this lesson, or they, maybe we learn it now, <laughs> that we go at it a different way. So yeah, I'm organizing food, organizing surplus. We have surplus. The, the rebellions run from the garbage. <laughs> we, there's enough food in the garbage to feed movements right now. So I've, I've, I've been redirecting waste into and, and taking a place like I live in Costa Rica that was pretty much wasteland. And it's turned into a thriving spot of organizing. More than a permaculture farm, that's not what we are. And I didn't even realize this until the last few years. It's more about what we're doing as an organizing body. And that's what most places are doing. Most of the permaculture spots I know, impact centers, they're not the most productive farm ever. But they are farming ideas. And thousands of people are flowing through and leaving these places. And I don't know why we wouldn't take that same, the next step of using that organization to make bigger change. I personally am going to run for office in Oregon in a few years. I can't keep quiet anymore about it, and I, I have the drive for it, but I've, I'm also identifying others in, my, in our crew that want to do this. So I'm going to have a few more years of organizing our collective here, but uh, I'm going to go probably run for governor in Oregon. My thing about this is, and again, as I said earlier, being kind of middle of the road, is that because of all the places that permaculture reaches, you and I certainly have more of a left perspective or progressive, if you will, when it comes to our personal political leanings. Do you have an interest in using these ideas of permaculture as a foundational body to be able to kind of reach across? I don't want to say the aisle because we use that so much in American politics, but I mean reach across the spectrum to get more of those folks who are in line with our long term goals and ethics on board so that we can work together under this umbrella and kind of break this left right dynamic? Yes, for sure. And I, I think also I tend to get along with the furthest, not the furthest right. But it's not, it's not so much a line as it is like circle, I think. And when you get far enough to the leftist ideas, you start running into a bunch of libertarian types that you totally agree with, too. So I'm totally on board. I'm bridging the, bridging the divide between libertarianism and socialism. I think they're really close. It's just it tends to be a matter of the identifying different enemies or different problems. Like, really, like my libertarian friends only blame government. They don't know how to they don't understand maybe the full spectrum approach where it's a corporation that's running that local politician that's making those decisions. And my leftist friends think government can't work and won't matter because it's run by corporations. So yeah, bridging that divide. But also, this is something that's really hit me. I maybe wasted too much time trying to convert people and I didn't get my team on the field. So we have a team already of people that agree with us. We don't need to be more divisive. We need to bridge gaps, but we also need to just start playing and not waiting around for a a consensus. Like sometimes when you're identifying something like Fukushima pouring in the ocean, it's not left, right. It's, it's your kid's lymph system. You know, it's your grandkid's liver. So the, these things that bigger than politics, bigger than argument, there's some of these things, water, my most dedicated right wing friends. I grew up in red state, Oregon. So I come from militiaville. I come from where everybody thinks they're ready to fight the government tomorrow. And that makes me laugh, but I understand they're fierce individualists. So yes, I think we're going to bridge those divides. I'm going to keep doing that. Permaculture does that for me. Having very strong libertarian business owner types show up at my farm, when they see a manifested into reality, leftist, liberal, hippie idea working, it turns them on. A lot of the times they haven't seen like leftists do anything productive <laughs> that they can, they can recognize. So uh, we're getting products to market. That impresses the hell out of like your, your more libertarian-minded folks. We're engaging in our local our localism first and foremost, and the bigger problems are not what we spend most of our time talking about. But I know as a science-minded, worldly person, I know that, that we have to go after these bigger issues. How do we talk about it better is probably what we mean. We need to talk about it in a way that doesn't split people apart. But 
not losing our vigor, not losing our, our interest in bringing justice, justice to the supply chain, these kind of things. And libertarians are very strong on like sovereignty. Le- leftists are very strong on consent. So let's bring consent and sovereignty together right now. And I've been doing it with the way I talk with people over the years. It worked on me. I was kind of an anarchist libertarian when I woke up to what was going on in the world. And I'm not too far off of that. My, like, my base personality is the same, but it's helped me identify by opening my mind, maybe more of directly what the problems are. And the problems aren't that complex. The people talking about them in the media make it sound complex. But like the financial system, bottom line, people are stealing a bunch of money from you, charging you interest for it. Uh, you know, they, they want to make economics seem really tough. They want to make global climate change sound like, a, like it's still a debate out there. There's not a debate among scientists. There's not a debate amongst polar bears. This is real. So yes, I want to create, I want to bridge divides, but I'm not going to compromise on those kind of things right now. We're going to, we need to find a few basic things that have to do with the health of this planet and find a team and organize around those things. Not trying to split people apart more, but I grew up in a, in a very split place. Red state Oregon is not a blue state. Portland is a blue state politically. Medford, Oregon was not when I was a kid. Now, things like marijuana, gay rights, that has brought together those communities. So there's a big shift in the time I've been gone. But really, there's, there's been some real coming together and political organizing around LGBTQ rights and around, around uh, medical marijuana and the drug war. So I find a ton of cooperation with my libertarian brothers and sisters about those, those things. Again, like people have come out in their families and they realize they love their brother even though he's gay. And people have realized that marijuana helped their grandma and it's not like crack cocaine and we should change. So that brought my state together that I grew up in. And so that's given me some, I don't like the word, but hope that, that organizing can work and that we've changed real laws and there's less people going to prison now. And it's people, you know, families are being, aren't being separated over choosing to smoke a flower or choosing to be in a sexual relationship that the neighbors don't agree with. And that stuff changed a lot, right? I left the States in 2006. There was no rights yet for LGBTQ folks to get married. And there was no, I mean, medicinal marijuana was in a few States. So there's a lot to learn from these movements. And it's one of the things for me where I live is I'm in the Pennsylvania region of Pennsylvania, which is also kind of the red section of the state because we have Philadelphia and Pittsburgh are the blue and then some other metro areas that kind of move in that direction as well. But the rest of the state is fairly conservative. And I found that through my work when it comes to natural resource management, that it's our our hunters and the other people who are very often seen as super conservative are the ones who, you know, you can go to the fish hatchery when they're having their meeting about the trout that they're going to stock and start talking about, you know, making sure that we care for this stream so that it stays cool enough for them to fish. And they're going to be the ones who who will take a bag with them and be picking up trash and making sure that line and hooks and things aren't left and be passing this kind of care and love for the natural world to those people around them. And I mean, that's one of the, my experiences was my father taking me to a hunter safety class, and then he and I going out and tramping across farm fields and going into the woods that we were not successful hunters when I was a child at all, <laughs> but spending that time together and getting to know those people and that care along the fence line. And that one of my favorite people here in the local community, a client of mine, we did some work together. And we were having a conversation that kind of moved towards the political. And it, we were talking about like that 1% of things that we didn't agree on. And then it was like, we just kind of both looked at each other and stopped. And it's like, wait, I'm here because you want to raise food for your family. And you're, you know, and that's where my interest is. That's what your interest is. Why do we talk about that and these kinds of things? And it only took us a couple of minutes to kind of move past some of this stuff. And I'm not saying that when we're having these conversations that ideologically, there aren't going to be things that we don't agree with. 
But if we can, all of us, regardless of where we stand, start looking for those things that we care about and agree on, we can be creating a whole lot more change and doing a lot more good for the world and the people around us in ways that, you know, we just can't imagine now. And I think about that change that you were talking about because, you know, I grew up during the Red Scare of the 80s and 90s. I was born at the tail end of the Carter administration. And looking at the way that, that some of those words have entered into our political discourse of like communism or socialism. But when I start really digging into these ideas and I have a friend who's diametrically opposed to me politically as well, but he and I will break things down and he's like, so when you're talking about like communism and socialism, you're not really talking about like Marxism or some of these other ideas. You're really talking about something that I might think of as communalism because you're looking at being active directly in your community. And we're trying to figure out what are ways that we can support private charities and industries to support those people who function in those systems because of their religious beliefs or because of the organizations that they belong to so that we can have mutual aid societies again, the kinds of things that were very active during the beginning of the 20th century, but were kind of destroyed again by industry so that we could have insurance companies and, you know, to buy this additional like unemployment insurance through these other policies in addition to what the government offers. And then people like myself who go, well, how do we then protect for these people who fall through the cracks? And then if we are going to have some governance and pay some taxes for roads and things, and we agree to these kinds of ideas together, then can we put a little bit of this aside to help support those folks who aren't going to be able to find those services elsewhere? Well, and the population of the world is so big. It's not like it used to be. There's billions and billions and billions of people now, right? A lot of these ideas were bounced around. There was 1 billion people on the planet 150 years ago. So we have to readjust to that massive scale shift. And charity and stuff only works if you can see it. Empathy is weird. Empathy is used the wrong way in the media. And what, what the politics has done is made sure that you and your friend argue about that 1% you don't agree on. That's, that's what people think politics means right now. Politics is that 99% you needed to talk about. And the 1% you actually do need to do something about should be had in a conversation, not in a political war, and not in a way that separates us so you can't vote on other things. Right. Like you need to fund your schools while you talk about or they won't even fund schools. What am I talking about? Um, <laughs> we're, we're at a time when we're so divided on that one percent or two percent of what we don't agree on that it's impossible to talk about the other 99 percent. I'm totally with you. We cannot go that way. We have to build alliances on the things that matter and do need to remember some people are so far off. They need to not be in control right now. There's the people running the ship are, I mean, in my mind, the Trump administration, the people he's put around him. They act like sociopaths. They are not considering tomorrow's air, water. If you had an interview with them personally and they, they still talk the way they talk on TV, you'd have to think they're going to harm themselves. They shouldn't have power. <laughs> they're going to harm us all. If we were on a smaller ship and the guy steering it was steering us into the sun, people would beg us to stop him. So it's just the ship's so big and empathy is being used wrong. It's being used by showing us a picture of someone overseas to manipulate us into going to war instead of, instead of getting us to recognize that child needs the basics, we think we got to kill to stop them from whatever. It's really screwy, right? And we're engaged in, we're engaged in world war. We are, in, we are engaged. The U.S. has nearly 1,000 U.S. bases outside of the U.S. This is the grand chess game of U.S. empire. And it may be the first time in history we haven't recognized that we're in an empire. Up until World War II, they, people were proud to talk about the British Empire, the French colonial empire, Ottoman Empire. All of a sudden, there's no empires. We're at a time when empire exists, and it's, it, it exists mostly, I believe, to keep like, supply chains in, in order. So most of my friends, leftist, right-wing, none of them want to be a part of empire. 
And then a lot of them don't even have a grip that that's what's happening. So we, we can come together on some of the biggest issues too, if we can talk about it right. It's okay to sit down and have an argument, have some discourse. It's part of democracy, but it shouldn't paralyze us getting local things done, right? And we need to enforce the law equally. It'd be great to see the law used equally. Maybe some executives and ties get charged the same way you'd charge a person of color down the street who, who committed a crime, right? So we're going to have to have some serious talks about not letting the, what you said earlier, the industrialists that are the industrial community that's made sure we don't have things from public transit to climate change laws to whatever it is. There's a real force there. And if we're not identifying it properly, if we're identifying it as our neighbor, because Fox News made it so that we couldn't talk to each other, I don't think Fox News believed that Obama was a communist from, from Africa, <laughs> okay? They, a Muslim, they believed what they were doing was making sure that you and I couldn't talk with our friends. Because what they were saying was that you and I are communists and that you and I are terrorist sympathizers. So the news did a great job at making sure we couldn't talk to each other. Now, Donald Trump is playing on that, saying the fake news, this bullshit you hear every day. That's, that's one of the most dangerous things he's done. He's taken away the fourth estate. It's really crazy that we, we don't believe anything anymore. We're, in, what is it? We're not in the time of truth. We're post-truth. We're like in the time of opinions and democratic truth. 51% believe something, it's true. That's, that's, really, that's really an interesting curveball historically. But unity over uniformity. I don't want the whole world to look like me, but I want to be able to come together. So I, fi I find issues all the time that I can deal with people, that, that I can cross the aisle, whatever we said. It's not that hard once you have relationships. Like you said, you had a relationship with your hunting neighbors. I did too. And then I saw my hunting neighbors are the ones that are now struggling the most to keep the forest healthy because they go there all the time and they're engaged in it. So we can talk about, we can talk about it now. I'm listening to people like Joe Rogan now on the radio. I didn't, he's kind of like this new leftist socialist anarchist. I don't know if you listen to the Rogan show, but it's, it's giving me some hope watching people of, of different political colors talk about real things that matter to them. And it's not going to happen in sound bites on television. It's going to happen in long conversations, free flow stuff like this. It doesn't come from two minutes between commercials. And I think that TV is, the TV news has ruined the conversation. I'm much more engaged now in the, in the radio news and the podcasts because you can really get to know people. And also over time, you can see if someone's full of shit in two minute sound bites, you know, anything can be said pretty much. I'm with you on the organizing. It's, it's my key word in the last 10 years. And I've seen it work for fixing soil. I've seen it work for fixing forests, for fixing little creeks, for creating the cool creek you need for trout to exist that we can all come together on those things if we can have the talk, if we can organize. And I tend to find my, the right-wing people I've worked with don't even want to have a government. That's more on the bigger level. When, when their neighbor's farm erodes onto theirs and eats up some of their acreage or washes out some of their spot, my most right-wing friends tend to want a government organization to help them. So I, I don't know, it's, it's, time, it's a really good time. As the major systems have, have failed us, it's a great opportunity to, to identify the problems and go after them. And, it, and not identify the problem people, but the problem ideas. I, I'm, not, I'm not afraid to step into those things. And I'm loving that your friend is running for political office. I think that's going to be, it sounds, it sounds like a lot of people aren't going to, they laugh at that. A lot of people in my circle will tell me I'm insane for even thinking politics matters. But Donald Trump is president. That's real. I, I, it took me about a year to digest that being down here. And foreigners, a lot of people from all over the world come to my place. They're straight confused. They don't understand. And Everyone out there should realize this, only 60, if even 60 million people voted for him, that means 270 million people didn't vote for him. So most of Americans did not support this. Most of us don't vote. <laughs> most of us are disenfranchised in some way or, or think it doesn't matter, mentally disenfranchised. So it's, it's worth remembering that only one out of like six Americans or one out of five Americans voted for him.
Well, and I, uh, it makes me think it's kind of a piece of black humor and part of my getting through this again, you know, my childhood and being concerned that one day I was going to wake up to the sound of air raid sirens and things like that because missiles or bombs were going to be coming in because that was a very legitimate fear for many of us who were, you know, over 30. And I joke with a friend of mine every morning, like, got to get up and check the news and see if, you know, any bombs were dropped overnight. And in some cases, as with what happened with Syria, it was, you know, out to dinner with some friends. And it's like, oh, here's the report that we're going to be ordering these strikes. But even though, like, as we're talking about this, these very, like, personal and individual concerns about this, what I hear coming through about your thoughts about permaculture and politics and where you yourself are at is about getting out of the stands and into the game, that you have this team that you want to go out there and get the work done. And then I feel, though, that in this conversation, what's arriving for me is that there's place for people such as myself who are who are politically active, and I do a lot of work on policy change and things like that, for getting local ordinances and whatnot passed so that people can do what they want to without getting fined for things, that there's a role for people such as myself and others who care about these issues and about our community to be communicating these ideas. That by sitting here and talking with you and hearing about your perspective, then being able to go out and pull things from our conversation to communicate these ideas further so that those people who I do have regular contact with, because the though certainly the audience of the show does lean a little bit more progressive, it is across the entire political spectrum. So it's, you know, if people are hearing this conversation and they're enlivened by it, then certainly let me know. If you're upset about this because you don't feel that your position or view is being represented, let me know. Because I want to talk about these things because that's kind of the, the seat that I'm in. I've changed my political view so much lately, Scott. I, I realize how, how I'm not, like, I can't be considered a leftist anymore because I don't agree with them on gun rights. And that'll piss people off, you know, or I still consume animals. So I'm finding myself in the middle of a really weird conversation with people that I thought I was 100% on board with, but they won't allow me to like something that seems like the other side. I'm doing air quotes, like gun rights. So, so I'm a, I'm a total like leftist, socialist-minded person with the big picture. And in my community, I could, I, you, could, you might think I'm a redneck the next day. So, so I'm with you. I'm in that position myself. I can't listen to any one political commentator and be on board all the way because maybe they chose not yet to understand an issue like I have by living on the ground and doing it or something. So I'm totally with you. I think it's the best time ever for this, this coming together. I got goosebumps. I, I'm having the best conversations with the right and the left right now all the time. Even if we don't agree on everything, we're finding that common ground. And, and you just said it a minute ago, get our team on the field, get on the field. I don't know if there's a team, especially with this dynamic social media thing where you could say one thing and blow yourself out with a whole group of people. You know, you tweet the wrong thing, who knows? So like, let's not judge our friends so much, right? And, uh, and another thing, my, one of my good friends down here said to me once, said, know your friends and they can't disappoint you. So just like, let's, let's get to know each other. Let's see where we're at. I think you and I would agree on most everything. And me and my redneck neighbor in Southern Oregon agree on most everything too. Maybe it's just a few little things. Like you're talking to a man over 50, it's going to be very hard for them to come into the political correctness world, to be able to talk without sounding like a dude from the 50s. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Even that is hard for me. And, but I'm living in a place where college students come by every day and it corrects my language. But I still laugh at it because I'm a huge stand-up comedian fan. right? So in all of, in all of this, I'm going to watch stand-up comedy this afternoon that makes fun of everything I'm doing and laugh it off and then wake up tomorrow and, and get back to work. So I'm, I'm totally with you. Let's come together. I want anyone listening to this to argue with me right now. Let's do it. This is all good. That's what politics it can be. It's okay. We're supposed to debate and we're forging the future. And we, we tend to think about politics as something that, that's stagnant, 
There's this left-right thing. That's, that's just what the media tells us. They're doing that to us. And I say they, I mean like corporate powers that want to extract every goddamn thing from this planet. Corporations that don't breathe air, don't drink water, don't need soil. They're just algorithms. And uh, I'm not afraid of this future where AI takes over the world and Terminators show up in my front door. I'm more worried by the algorithms that corporations already use and have for the last hundred plus years, which is corporate doctrine. And if you try and go against it, you'll get fired from that company. So we're, we're at a time when we're going to have to like shift the programming. Yeah, right now, we've got to change the code. We need to get back in there and reset that algorithm. That's actually why I'm excited about things like blockchain, because it's, it's, I think it's the most disruptive force ever in, in the algorithm of moving money around and contracts, stuff like that. But when it comes to just organizing the way our businesses act, they need to reflect the world now, not the world 120 years ago. And I, I come together with everyone on this when we can actually get there. But it probably it always requires more than a three minute conversation. And that doesn't happen on most media sources. And people don't read like they should. So <laughs> that's hard. But these mediums here talking to people like people are really absorbing podcasts and they really love videos. And we're working on a documentary with National Geographic right now to talk about our fight against palm oil down here. And uh, it's amazing how how many things are coming out of the woodwork this year. I was on stage at Envision two years ago saying Trump was going to win. And we were going to start a revolution or we're going to start a true rebellion. And people were sneering at me. And not that I didn't want someone like Hillary to win. By the way, I think Hillary won the election. It wasn't Russia. It was good old keeping people away from the polls. Between Michigan, Pennsylvania, a couple of spots, Ohio, all it took was not letting black folks vote again and you win. That's pretty much what happened in Michigan. It wasn't Russia. We need to stop that bullshit in the media. That's actually just pushing us to war with someone we should never fight. What we need to deal with is good old vote rigging, not like adding votes, not going out and affecting people, but stopping people from getting to the polls. That's where the real thing is happening in the U.S. politic. And that's keeping poor people, people of color away, people who have committed a crime before, not able to vote. Something like 40% of black men have been in prison in their life and have lost their rights to vote in their states. And while they're in prison, by the way, they're working for AT&T for 26 cents an hour. So we have re-enslaved part of our population. We've made them not able to vote. We do the same thing to Native Americans. Look at how they don't get their votes counted. That stuff is how elections are stolen. Hillary won, and this orange dude stole the first woman, the first woman that ever won political power of that scope. He took it from her. And we're not doing anything about that. It's weird. We're complaining about Russia. And it's such a dangerous time. We should not start a war with Russia. If anybody's hearing this that really cares about life, doesn't want uranium spread everywhere, plutonium bombs going off, it's not a joke. You and I grew up in the 70s and 80s. We know what it's like to be afraid of this. Young people think these little isolated wars will never touch them. We cannot go to war with Russia. Like, no, no matter what, we need to go to the table right now. We cannot go to war with China. Like, we have to get a grip on what that would mean. There's no isolated naval wars anymore. We have a full spectrum dominance. It's going to get very real very quick. Trump pushed those buttons the other night in Syria, knowing that possibly a U.S. plane could get shot down by a Russian plane or an Israeli plane could have got hit by a Russian missile. Luckily, it didn't explode into that. But he still pushed those buttons. Those people right now are willing to push those buttons, knowing that it could happen. And you and I and a couple of people older than us, <laughs> we remember what it's like to be afraid of that. Young people, don't be afraid, but don't let this happen. Like We stopped the war in Syria several years ago when Obama tried. We did, the people. We rose up. We protested the war before it started. We need action right now. And I don't just mean a protest with a sign. I mean living, living in protest. Man what they call in Central America, they call them manifestations, not protests. So here we're, we're manifesting every time we go out in the streets and every time we talk politics. And I like that more.
but but it's very serious right now and it's not a joke and it may not be the most positive thing people are going to hear on this podcast but let's take it seriously war is real and privileged people don't know what it's like to have war in their backyard and the trauma that comes from it that we'll deal with for generations like we're not going to you don't get to blow someone up and then they forget people under the boots don't forget like people who wear the boots so it's it's very real right now and and I had a whole pot of coffee so I'm pretty excited uh, <laughs> With what you're saying, it reminds me, I just saw recently that there was a report that the memory of the Holocaust is fading as people from that era pass away and the people who it was very visceral for are no longer around to tell those stories. And that was one of the things for me, my godparents were both Holocaust survivors. And that's something that was, you know, very integral in my life. And it's why really a lot of my political leanings are where they are. And I have such a deep opposition to fascism and neo-Nazis and others who would have that kind of a worldview because... I've gotten to see the the numbers that is still in the skin of people who were taken into camps and all of these other things. And so not only do I have that experience there, but I also in my own community, the impact, as you were saying, about how we're not far removed from that when we look at for-profit prisons and the school-to-prison pipeline and some of these other issues that, depending on wh where and how you were born and who you were born to, that you're never going to encounter. And it's been eye-opening for me. And it's even though, like you were saying about people being disenfranchised from the vote. Pennsylvania doesn't disenfranchise people who've been to prison. But the story, though, is told, because it's part of the larger narrative, that if you go to prison, you lose your right to vote. People think they've lost their right to vote. Exactly. So they never do. And there's been this push in this campaign to get people to be aware of this. And it was, I found out about this because I raised this issue in a community conversation. And one of the folks was like, no, 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 that's not true. And then showed me this. And we talked about how this kind of narrative is out there. In some states, it is true. It's just not true in all states. And we have to learn in each state if it's true to us. Yeah. As somebody who's been a student of history for uh, decades now, because I'm getting older, um, <laughs> I think about, you know, the importance of the public houses and the taverns and the coffee houses and that, you know, we have this, at least my perspective of this in the way that I, it's arisen in conversation is that the founding fathers of this country were kind of monolithic in their view of what, what we should have had. But they weren't. They were getting pissed, drunk over punch, and arguing and fighting each other. And, you know, what should this be? What should that be? And then we have this document that became the Constitution that we point back to that is what their work led to. But they were going through rows and all of these discussions and conversations about what should be there. And, you know, there may be some plenty of things in there that we don't agree with or would like to know. What does that comma mean in the Second Amendment? That's right. That comma means a lot. <laughs> right. And I mean, I'm not a constitutional scholar, but I, as you were saying earlier about this left-right thing, having been a hunter, having been raised in the way that I was, you know, to me, a firearm is a tool. But I can also understand my friends who have never shot and who only see things like AR-15s as a representation of a weapon of war. So let's talk about... The AR-15 isn't killing, doing most of the damage. It's just a scary one. Right, and that's the one that's out there. But I can point to something like a ranch rifle from Ruger that's using the same ammunition, ammunition, similar magazines. But because it doesn't look scary, it looks like something that a hunter or a farmer would use. It's not what we're talking about. But as you were saying, that's where this these podcasts and videos and this independent media that is separate from all these other things I find is really important. Because you and I can sit here and talk for an hour. And somebody can hear more than just a soundbite. They can put it on in their car and go, did he really just say what I think he said? What the <laughs> hell was that? Rewind 30 <laughs> seconds and go, mm, that makes me angry. But this makes me feel really good because I agree with that. And that's great because this is what we have to get into. 
Hey, by the way, real quick, and that thought, you know, permaculture, if you and I took over today and our people and our friends all started running our communities, we'd have to have permaculture police. We'd have to have permaculture courts. We'd have to have permaculture ethics prisons. Like, it's not going to stop those hidden tendencies and, and violence against women and, and financial crimes. Maybe it'll lessen as there's the stress comes off because society's, you know, tending to problems and we're paying attention to mental health. But in the, in the interim, in the short term, permaculture still has to have Navy SEALs. Okay, like that's that's something I've never heard most permies talk about, especially in a PDC. But I do. I talk about that and challenge people like we still have the trauma of yesterday to cope with. That doesn't stop just because we we've won an election or something. We actually have to sit down deep. Think, what does it mean to take permaculture to the next level and the next level and the next level? It means dealing with some of the really weird stuff and negative things. Maybe you do it way better, but it doesn't mean you don't have a guy that has to go in and kick a door in and take a dude out that has people kidnapped or something. That's very real. And that's something that most people haven't pondered, I think, that have, that have been in this game. And it's not, it's not the most positive thing, but it may make you think more adult and less naive about this stuff. Like, what does it mean? And when you're talking to the other side of the politic, you're talking to the other side of the fence on this, if you haven't pondered these things, you're probably not going to answer this right. And you're going to frustrate them and they're going to walk away from the table, not, not thinking you're someone that they can, uh, an honest broker or uh, someone they're debating, debating with in good faith. You're someone who doesn't want to talk about big parts of the issue. So yeah, permaculture Navy SEALs. That's that's not the most beautiful thing to think about, but it's it's going to be real too. I want the person telling them what to do, to tell them what to do with the best set of ethics possible and doing it for the best the you know for the common good. That could be taken wrong, whatever. It can be used wrong, but it doesn't mean it doesn't have to exist. You need that big dude with muscles that's okay with a gun to save someone in a kidnap situation. And th- th- that's not something you talk about in a PDC normally. <laughs> and I'm challenging people to think about that. And it's one of the things a good friend of mine in the community is someone who has done that kind of work. And he and I talk about the lack of soft skills for many of those people, whether that's in country, out of country, a member of the military or somewhere else. You know, we think about in the news about people getting shot by police. And so not only in my mind, do we have to be concerned about that family who has been impacted by that violence for whatever reason it happened? How can we help the victims on one end of that, but also how do we help the perpetrators, the people who did those actions? And coming back from the military is not having the soft skills, things like the Roman Empire or Japanese culture about how they formalized this care for things between ritualized ceremonies like tea or bonsai or some of these other arts that are kind of part of these, as I understand them anyway, the, the Bushido and samurai traditions, but also then for like the Romans then that they were given land to go back and farm. Sure, that's part of their colonizing and everything else, but it is, though, you know, having something to come back to. Thinking about those things and caring about more than just like our own little tribe, because to me, it's earth care, people care, and I want to have better solutions for people with mental illness and victims of trauma and everything else. But it's hard. Most of our gun violence is suicide. It's mental illness. Two thirds of the gun deaths are suicide. Like, so, yeah, like the, the, we talked about guns a minute ago. Mental illness is the problem. And that, that's not going to be treated just because you want to treat it today. That's going to take long-term compassion. And it's going to take building a softer system. Like you said, I love the way you said that. They haven't been taught the soft skills. Because my friends were trained that went to the Marines to kill when they're told to kill. And that's, that's, that's what they have to do in that situation, I guess. But they're going to come back to society next year. And have we helped cultivate a uh, full, comprehensive human? Or have we helped cultivate a killer? And I have had my moments where I'm very upset at the police, but then I don't envy the police's job at all. If you and I were cops, today we went three drunk drivers killed a bunch of people and we saw it tomorrow, I'm going to be harder on those other drunk drivers. 
tomorrow I'm not going to be as sensitive to that guy that just killed someone with his car. So like we have to recognize trauma and build out of that, not just think that an idea is going to shift that in one minute. My friends that have been to the Iraq war have hurt themselves. It's not good. And it takes an amazing amount of work. It's not work for everybody, but that's why we have things like taxes. We said earlier about charity. We're supposed to build this up and you and I can't pay attention to all the details. So I don't mind paying a percentage of my income to take care of the things I can't see. So we, we actually have to get back to a point where we're not just doing charity. We're proactively like going after the, the base of these problems as a community and letting the smart people that know what to do do their work and paying them for it. Like I'm, I, uh, I'm a total anarchist on the ground permie who wants to pay 50% in taxes if, if those things are taken care of. Like, like real, and that, that, doesn't, that doesn't agree with a lot of my right-wing friends. But, uh, you know, I don't build the roads, and I, don't, and I don't want to have to deal with every little problem in society. I want to be able to pay collectively to fix these things. And we, we, we learned these lessons when old people were dying in the streets, and we started the New Deal. And while it has its problems, it's like Social Security is maybe one of the best things the government's ever done. And it's one of the most productive things, and Medicare, things that have worked. So we, we should empower those things that have worked, although I'm, you'll get a lot of argument from, from my friends that those things work. But they, they don't have short memory. You said historical perspective. Not only do not know any Jewish people that were survivors from the Holocaust, we also don't know any U.S. soldiers that have PTSD and never slept again after that year because those guys have passed away. So we have a lot to learn about both ends of the spectrum on trauma. And America is deep in this right now, whether the citizens know it or not. We, we spend something like 2 to $3 trillion a year in the U.S. That's trillion, T, uh, on building, supplying, and delivering weapons. And you have a earth care as the first thing in permaculture, earth care, yes. War is the single most destructive thing to the environment. And the last year of the Iraq war really going hard, I think it was 11. It was the largest cause of global warming that year. Plus, you have to imagine that chemicals from weapons blowing up don't do good things for frogs. We should treat war like the worst environmental disaster of all time. And our environmentalist friends should be on board with stopping this. And, and it's also like it's this trauma to children and this trauma to adults. Like, this stuff should be thought about it as it is the police actions we take inside the U.S. And I, I don't envy anybody's job on the ground. If you're out there and you're in the Marines right now, I love you. <laughs> I, I do. I'm on your side. If you're a cop, you're listening to this, I love you. Do better work, please. And, uh, and you know, be gentle to people. But this, this is a trauma we're dealing with, not just an idea. And that's, that's a deeper problem. But I feel good about it, by the way. I say, I say, that, I say all the time. But we're talking about it. I have a smile on my face right now. Uh, <laughs> so... I'd rather the conversation be had than, than us just build up frustration and think there's no answers. There are answers. And it, we, we are every day getting up and doing something. Are we doing the best we can or not? And I've learned here, Costa Rica, looking at my little piece of land, I just took areas and stopped doing things to them. And they grew. When I took the pressure off of nature, it did amazing things. So it may not even be about as much as what we do as much as what we don't do. I have more faith that people cannot do stuff than do stuff. <laughs> and I think we can stop destroying things. I think we wake up every day and choose to make the world what it is. So I don't know why we can't wake up tomorrow and choose to make it a little different. And the positive things are feedback loops, just like the negative. And my positive feedback loops are getting better every day because of my connection with nature and community. And I don't know why more people can't have that. And I, uh, I'm not, I don't come from a wealthy family or anything, but I, I have, I'm a tall white guy with some privilege and I'm going to use that lever as much as I can to spread that privilege out. And I think politics is a chance for us to, to spread privilege around and flip the script. Well, and you remind me of something that from my own life, what I was saying earlier about each of us having our own fight and doing the things that we do. And it was a conversation with a friend of mine, an African-American woman in Pittsburgh. We were talking about um, after birth support and community action and activism. And I was trying to be a good ally 
um, on a project. And at one point I realized that some of the things that I was offering just weren't landing. And I asked her, what could I do? And she just said, end the war on drugs. Like without a pause, without missing a beat, it was just, you know, that's what you can do. And it's like, wait, what? And it's because I'm someone who I sound the way that I do. I look the way that I do. I have the education that I have, being able to put on a suit and walk in, cover my tattoos, take out all the, my rings and piercings and say, hello, Senator, how are you doing? And the impact that that can have. And it was really, I'll be honest, it was empowering for me to know that I am in that position, that, you know, that's where I'm at. And that, you know, I don't agree on the war on drugs because of all the people I know who've been hit by it from family members to members of my community, knowing some folks who regretfully were killed because of things that have happened as a result of that, both on the street and as a result of police action. And it's just left going, you know, this isn't what I want to see. And overdoses because they're, they're not happy and they're hurting themselves. So there's not, we don't need a war on drugs. We need compassionate cooperation on addiction and we need these things. And it, yeah, ending the war on drugs is my, one of my first answers too. It's CSAs and ending the war on drugs. <laughs> <laughs> Mine is just like, let's have some conversations and some discourse. And I mean, you and I are talking about this today and I'm not a political scientist. I'm just somebody who gives a damn. And, you know, being able to have these, these conversations and put them out in the open and talk about the things that I'm afraid of and that I'm scared about for the future for my kids and others. Yeah, whittling down what's rational to be afraid of is good because there's a lot of people in the political sphere that have irrational fears and that's causing wrong actions. A lot of people shy away from the word fear or, I know, like negativity. But if what we're trying to do right now, you and I believe I'm trying to do is, is lessen irrational fear and motivate people into the few like real human nature fears they should have. Like, is, is you have water tomorrow? Is it clean? Are your friends in prison? Like, these are things that I think we can answer. And something you said a minute ago really triggered, uh, ending the war on drugs. Man, that, that has hurt both sides. And prohibition, historically, has always ended up leaving more and more negative, violent people in control. Prohibition, especially about crimes against oneself, never work. Now, it does work. For, I used to do recycling and shredding. I would go into the prisons in uh, outskirts of Portland to do shredding services and to do recycling. And I would be in a call center for Verizon Wireless inside the prison, and they're paying 30 cents an hour. So like th this isn't, it is working for some people. It's, <laughs> treating people like cattle does work for a certain class. So it's, it's, not, it's not like it's a total loss. It's a total loss for most people in society that were on drugs, but it's a total win if you build helicopters that go to Columbia. It's a total win if you're investing in that company. And most of us, because of our, you said earlier, we're kind of by default involved in the system because we need products from it. Well, if you have a 401k, you're by default crossing your fingers, hoping the drug war keeps happening because you're part of that helicopter company that needs profits this year for your, you know, you to stay ahead of inflation. So we, I think that even as the best activist, I find myself crossing my fingers, hoping the markets work so that I can retire one day. So we have to have a really deep look at this at what it means to like care. And do you care with all of your energy? Do you just care with your rhetoric? I started to care with more and more of my energy. And then it turned into me not being able to go earn money. I'm figuring that out a different way now. Building, building systems and corporations and co-ops that work and where I don't need to take as much income personally. The, these things, they're deep problems and there's deep solutions too. And deep solutions aren't as fun. People just hope there'd be a leader in place that'll do it. But the deep solution is I have to, I have to want something different. My dreams have to change and my dreams have to include, I think they have to include my, my own grandchild's lymph system, <laughs> like being healthy. And that doesn't work if I'm heavily invested in nuclear power on the other side. So even if you can argue that this stuff's good or bad and we can have long arguments about, about whether certain technologies are good, am I needing it to succeed for my own selfish reasons in the long term? And that, that's something I had to get deep on. 
And you don't need to be a political scientist or an economist to get into these games. The system has really tended to making us feel like you have to be an expert before you can talk about it. But our democracy was supposed to be a bottom-up thing that we all participated in. Well, originally it was white dudes with property. Uh, but There was a dream there, right? There was. The dream is it's an evolving algorithm, right? A lot of people, my right-wing friends, they tend to think it was a stagnant thing that happened and we have to pay attention to the rules of 1777. They would disagree with that themselves if they went back in time. They would, they would realize that the evolution of law is beautiful and the precedent-setting stuff that happens in courts is more important than the politicians voting something in or out. Like, we are evolving all the time on this stuff. It's, stag it's not stagnant. Just like fascism isn't stagnant. You turn on the History Channel right now, fascism was a thing that happened in the 30s. No, it's a centralizing power of wealth that leaves, that leaves less people in control of decisions, and it's just evolved. We need to take history out of the history books and live it, because it's alive. And history is, like, just now. This is history. This is history again. Like, like this, this, stuff, this stuff is an evolving algorithm, and I don't think we should... Uh, we should let it fall to the pages of history, especially when the pages of history are written by four or five corporations to put that out to our schools. So uh, <laughs> it's time to take control of history and understand it. And those that understand history are doomed to watch those who don't repeat it. So we need to, we need to get the message out that the shit matters. People need to read some Emma Goldman. People need to read some Eugene Debs. This wasn't long ago that we had some of the most amazing articulate fighters for rights people that would go to prison like Eugene Debs, and as they leave, all the prisoners are lined up crying and hugging them. It's our time. It really is. I don't, I don't know how to put it any more starkly, but like Donald Trump is running the world right now. His friends are making decisions for short-term extractional gain, you know? And like, and they, if we don't pretend, if we don't act like it matters, it, it doesn't. Our my ideas don't matter if we don't put them out there. And uh, I, I, again, we do not want violent revolution. We do not want this world to collapse. The first person to suffer First people to suffer during collapse are the most vulnerable, old people, children, women. So like as, as white men at this time in history, as, as powerful people in this society, or the ability to be powerful, it's on us. Like Superman or Spider-Man's dad said, right? Or uncle, where with much power comes much responsibility. That is not a joke. <laughs> uh, and, and when we look back at history in 50 years, our kids are looking back. I don't want them to say that I was a passive fascist or that I was passively letting things happen. I win every day in my political revolution because I do it and I know myself I've done my best. I'm not waiting for this day when collapse happens and I can take control. That is going to be awful. You don't want your grandma to go through that. We need to be ahead of collapse. And as people from the first world, we can't keep saying that this collapse is coming because if you're in Sudan, it's already here. If you're in Syria, it's here. 30,000 plus children died of diarrhea today. Diarrhea today. 30,000 more kids will die of starvation by the end of the day. That is a full-on collapse. So we should recognize that collapse is relative and it's perspective. And the full collapse of like food systems is already well underway. The full collapse of soil, topsoil and watersheds, well underway. The full collapse of, of, of uh, ocean ecosystems, well underway. <laughs> so like, let's stop talking about collapse as this future event, you know, when it hurts the top of the buildings in New York. That's not what I'm waiting for. I'm, I'm acting like there's, a, there's already a complete ethical and moral collapse well underway. <laughs> I'm glad that we've taken the time to play tag with each other because we've been, what, four or five months in trying to get this interview together? And I'm really glad that we were finally able to make this happen and to be able to get this together and out there because it's something that I don't talk about these kinds of things a lot on the show. I don't know, maybe three or four interviews have I gotten into some of this thought, but it is something that's really important for me because 
there are a lot of people who are moved to be engaged in politics. We have some great thinkers in our community who just chew over these kinds of ideas, but it's in private conversation that we hear about bits and pieces of it. And so, you know, I'm my desire from the talk that we've had today is that this will catalyze more conversations, both publicly and privately, to get into this. I would love it. I hope that, like you said, I, this is not about a lot of your podcasts and a lot of their really like nice contained, not just problems, but solutions. And that's great. There is no solution for this except talking more. And you say there's like leaders in our communities. I just have a quick quote from Eugene Debs. He said, I would not lead you into the promised land if I could. If I could, someone else could lead you out of it. So we, like, we're not here to try and lead people out of this turmoil. We need critical thinkers that will lead themselves out of it. And if my voice and my charisma can change someone's mind, someone else's can change it back. So it's, it's, it's a time for personal responsibility, which I, I know a lot of our friends will agree with. Uh, man, I, I love to talk. And please, people, get in, talk, get in touch with me directly if you'd like. Yell at me, argue with me. Let's talk about it. This is an evolving conversation. And we're not going to win this thing. We're going to cooperate into a new future. And also, I, I beg people, close your eyes for a second. Imagine millions of your neighbors, millions of them investing just a couple hours a week to a good cause. Imagine what happens if millions of people envision something different. I'm not saying the government's going to change, but what if you and millions of your friends that are already in this group, we're already out there. Why don't we pay our own taxes? Why don't we build our parallel system right now? There's been no time like now. It's amazing. So I'm. Um, thank you for the talk. Thank you for the conversation. And let's anybody that wants to talk with us, I'd, I hope this leads to more discussions. Well, I certainly want to have you back so that we can talk more about blockchain and how that's useful, because as somebody with an IT background and everything else, I understand the amount of power that's required with some of the current blockchain schemes that are out there. But while you are in town and it's easier for people to get in touch with you, if they'd like to continue this conversation, how can they reach out to you? I'm on Twitter as Revolutionary Farmer. Joshua Peace Seeker at Gmail is my email address. And uh, I'd love any discourse on this. I'm, like I said, my ideas are changing all the time too. So I need more uh, visionaries to help me think this stuff through. And uh, let's do this. And anybody that wants to team up with us, there's a lot of dynamic ways that I'm getting involved. In. And, let's, and really, permaculture politics is coming. Um, it's already there in the way we feel and the way we treat our local community for a lot of us. But Let's get engaged in politics. Let's make some solid plans and run some people for office. Let's, I want to use the blockchain stuff we're doing to help fund candidacies. So um, I want to I be there for you. If you're the right kind of uh, leader and you're, you want to run for office right now, I want to support you. Then I will certainly make sure that all of that gets shared so people can find you. And yeah, if there's anything that I can do throughout that, of course, you'll find my contact information in my end notes and the show notes. And I'll share Joshua's as well. And yeah, definitely get in touch with us. And we'll continue this conversation. So thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you, Scott. This was fun. And uh, it's not traditional for your program. And I'm, I'm loving it that you did this. So anytime. And that was Joshua Hughes. You can find him on Twitter at FarmEvolution42 or by searching Revolutionary Farmer. As he also said there at the end, you can email him, JoshuaPeaceSeeker at gmail.com. In the show notes, I also link to his other projects and our earlier interviews together. Though this conversation centered around the United States, Joshua, myself, and others are here to help you if you want to get involved in politics at whatever level, wherever you live. Reach out to us if we can help you make a difference and to continue the conversation. Leave a comment in the show notes, call 717-827-6266, email show at thepermaculturepodcast.com, or write The Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dolphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. 
The next episode is a conversation with Claire Kenny of the Mud Girls to continue talking about natural building. Until then, spend each day getting engaged and changing the world around you while taking care of Earth, yourself, and each other.